Welcome to Biota Chat. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this evening I have the pleasure of talking with Travis Savo about ethics and artificial life. Travis, you have particular concerns with regards to developing artificial life and the issues that one may have ethically as an artificial life developer. Can you expand on those a little? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I have come across in my exploration for artificial life, um, I've read a lot of people talking a lot about um, friendly AI and developing friendly AI and how we have to first work towards a friendly um, system of intelligence before we can move beyond that and really truly explore its capabilities. And in my findings, everything that I have that has pointed uh, me towards actually creating artificial life tells me that um, evolution itself is not a friendly process. In fact, it's a very much tooth and nail process. And um, this has in turn led me to believe that um, artificial life as we understand it won't necessarily be friendly at first. It's very much possible that eventually a framework for morals and ethics will emerge from within um, a, a completely digital environment that's self-sustaining. But initially, the process of evolution looks like first making the organism self-sufficient and self-motivated. And when you do something like that and you don't give it um, a, a moral or ethical framework to operate within, it basically is left to develop its own. And the problem that I keep on coming across is all the solutions that I have encountered and all the solutions that I have worked on to develop artificial life more or less precludes it working within a moral framework because this itself is anthemic to how evolution actually operates. And so my recent work has turned very rapidly towards addressing the concerns of what happens when we produce artificial life, both from um, a humanity standpoint and from a digital standpoint of you know, uh, what, what happens when um, these machines are able to demand representation, for instance. But honestly, I see, I see that as being uh, quite a bit ways down the line. A much more immediate concern is what dangers, um, what dangers are, being, are, are potentially being posed to um, us as a species, us as a population, us as an um, economic faring race, um, as a result of these emergent technologies. And so that's where um, my interest really comes in, is how do, we, how do we make these types of technologies safe for ourselves and safe for other people to use without hurting ourselves in the process? So that's interesting when couched with regards to artificial life specifically, but if we can remove it from artificial life specifically and look at things in an abstract setting, obviously ethics... Uh, particularly with regards to technology, come from somewhere. But what I find particularly curious is that if you look at pieces of technology, things like the automobile, the personal computer, these kind of things, the ethical framework that is applied to the development of these things, the car is a perfect example of this, is far removed from the kind of ethical framework that we may want to idealise about. So the pragmatic nature of technology developing uh, take the car, for example, with regards to the development of American cities. There are a number of points along that development where an ethical person would have said, wait, this means that communities can't actually interact unless they have automobiles. 
and even if they have automobiles, they're going to get increasingly divided into smaller and smaller, you know, points to the to the situation where the individual exists on its own in a car as opposed to as part of a broader community. So I think with regards to the ethics of technology, it really needs to be prefaced in where does one get this applied ethical framework from? And the problem I have with the perspective that you've laid out is that there is no ethical framework that has the high and lofty ideals that you are trying to apply to artificial life that exists in the broader ethics of how technology is developed. So whilst artificial life may have some kind of intimate connection to the developers, from a technical standpoint, it is just another piece of technology and thus must exist in the ethical framework of the other pieces of technology. And if something were to characterise contemporary technological development, it would be the complete lack of ethics that is used in the development implementation and the ultimate flattening of other forms of technology as a means of, you know, fundamentally kind of post-Spencerian um, extremes of survival of the fittest in some regard, but also just complete monopolistic behaviour. So my feeling is that in order to have a discussion with regards to ethics that is applied to artificial life, one has to either say that artificial life is special and it isn't part of the broader technical framework of, of technology, even to things like the automobile, that it has some special place, and then some explanation of why it has this special place, or ultimately you start looking at it as an applied ethics with reference to the space in which it inhabits, in which case the, the bar is very, very low for the kind of ethics that need to be applied to artificial life. What would you say to that? Well, first of all, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I, I wholly reject the, the idea that artificial life is somewhat, in some way special as a technology and does not have the same rules as a technology applied to it. I think it's absolutely applicable, um, which leads us to the unhappy conclusion that we as humans must be ethical about its development. And so I, I think that Einstein very much faced this problem. Einstein was a, a self-declared pacifist who was adamantly against um, wars of all type. And he never actually considered in his research when, when pondering E equals MC squared, he never actually considered the possibility of a chain reaction which could lead to a nuclear explosion. It wasn't until Leo con confronted him with his research and said, you know, hey, this is really dangerous. You should write a letter to, uh, I believe it was Roosevelt, saying, urging him to start the nuclear program because it was very likely that Germany was in fact doing the same thing. So in this way, we are very much following in the, in the steps of, you know, kind of realizing, no, you can't treat this as special. You have to actually, you know, cope with the, the ramifications of it. The facts of the matter are that disruptive technology imposes it, itself upon a unsuspecting society. That is just the definition of, of um, disruptive technologies, that we're just not prepared for it. And so my um, research has been into developing um, paths, for, paths to protect ourselves from the technology, um, which is to say that, you know, if I were to release a framework that was capable of doing something, it would behoove me to understand what, it, what all the ramifications of that, what that thing could do. If it was potentially capable of being a weapon, it would be 
behoove me as an, as an ethical human to work towards devising technology that would mitigate the risks of that danger. And so this is where my ethics come into well, you know, the talk about artificial life. And Does that make sense? I take a different standpoint. If we can return to Einstein, I mean, I think my own... My own experiences with history, and this is why, aside from Biotra, I'm quite close with Bruce Damer, is because we both have a legacy interest with regards to the history of technology, computer technology primarily. And my experiences, and I don't want to talk for Bruce, so I'll just talk about my experiences, but my experiences with regards to meeting historical figures in the field of technology of computers and things like that is that their historical legacy never actual never actually represents the facts and my feeling with regards to einstein was that there is no way that he could have constructed what he did in terms of the concepts that he was dealing with particularly with regards to uh, the huge spatial concepts that he was dealing with without understanding that this could be used in a negative way. I mean, if you look at fireworks to guns, if you look at all these kind of things, the, prior to Einstein, there was a good historical legacy of technology and ideas being used in weaponry and things like that. So with regards to the historical account of Einstein, I think what we have is a romantic vision. With regards to personal responsibility of developing this kind of technology, Whilst I agree with you in some naive sense, my broader interest is that the technology I think, particularly with regards to artificial life, has a great degree of productive benefit. And whilst there is a component that may be detrimental, the productive benefit far outweighs the detriment. My sense is that this is perhaps what Einstein thought as he was developing, you know, his particular theoretical you know, framework that went on to create a wide variety of things, nuclear weapons aside. So my feeling is that if one looks at artificial life as potentially being used in a negative way, one needs to look at the things that it could be used for. And whilst you talk about disruptive technology, when you talk about applied ethics, and I've had this recently with Dick Gordon's book, there are people that say that basically ethics are completely relative, and I always return to the idea of murder and destruction of property as being ethics that are not in any way relative. When you talk about artificial life, the damage that it could do, aside from being in some automated robot kind of killing device, which ultimately it would appear Rodney Brooke is developing as part of uh, iRobot, uh, maybe assistive military technology, but the disclosure with regards to that is not particularly good. Or alternatively, in terms of the damage of property, in software terms, a lot of financial information is represented in purely software terms, in purely soft terms. So in those regards, there is a component of artificial life that could be used for these kind of destructive effects. But what I'll say with regards to these things is that in terms of death and in terms of financial loss, there are a wide variety of far more simple technologies that already exist, that already do that, that devious minds will probably gravitate to before they will gravitate to artificial life development. And I'm speaking here to someone who has spent a relatively similar length of time investigating and developing artificial life, so I'm sure you appreciate more than most the length of time and the passion that is involved actually in creating and developing artificial life. 
I don't think this is something that could be done with the current technology in a way where it would be easier to develop an artificial life organism that would, you know, hit banks or what have you versus the existing methods that already are, are in the, you know, public domain effectively. So in that regard, the dangers associated with releasing artificial life technology for me personally have never been a, a substantial ethical concern. Now, personally, Noble Ape is downloaded by a wide variety of people. There is a, an Iranian group that downloads Noble Ape, and as we sit here in the US, you know, maybe this is supposed to generate some degree of concern. My sense is that they're university students from the correspondence that I've had. So I don't think there will be any Noble Ape Iranian Terminators coming in the foreseeable future. However, there's always this kind of discussion with people that want to, you know, perhaps say that there is potential with regards to this technology. I'm not saying that this is your, your view uh, in particular. But my feeling is that if we look at all the things that artificial life could be doing, the productive benefit is far outweighing any potential detriment. And my sense is that that is possibly what Einstein was thinking as he developed his theories, as opposed to the possibility uh, that, you know, nuclear weapons would be the sole use of his technology. So what do you say to that with regards to the kind of component division of good versus bad in terms of technical development? Oh, I certainly agree, uh, agree without, without a doubt that the potential for good with this technology far outweighs the now we have a situation just about every day where we say we have a problem, we don't have um, a solution for the problem, let's invent the technology. And as a result of the work that you know these people are doing that are on the frontier of evolutionary computing and artificial life, uh, very, very soon we will say um, we have a problem, we don't have the technology to solve this problem, let's evolve the technology. And this is kind of a, a very much a paradigm shift. Um, specifically, however, the problem that I keep on running up against is um, my specific research is very focused on, um, on a couple of narrow aspects of artificial life. Um, number one, the um, creating a, a, a living organism, um, not necessarily that, that replicates a physical organism, but that replicates the uh, nature of a physical organism, which is to say that it destructive 
addictive behaviors. And the problem that I'm running into is I have not found a way to overcome this problem of supplying the, the correct Pinocchio function without introducing these virus-like behaviors and these self-replicating-like behaviors. And I'm very much afraid that the minute that I um, unleash this knowledge on an unsuspecting world, that the virus writers are going to take it and just about immediately create a virus or an exploit, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, and the reason for that is it would be potentially unbound by its creator. It's one of those technologies that very much has the potential to get out of hand, get out of your control, because by design, it would work towards um, self-sufficiency and self-sustaining um, self-sustaining systems, right? And so what that means is that the minute you went to act against it, it would try and evolve a solution, which was in turn acting against you, acting against it. And the potential for this just happens so fast in my design that I, I literally lose control of the organism before I'm able to do anything useful for it with it, which isn't necessarily to say that, you know, the Pinocchio function will make it do anything useful right away. The whole idea of the Pinocchio function is to supply a, a, a landscape which is increasingly complex and, and increasingly evolving with the complexity of the organisms that's, that are living within it. And I, I have not... Once, once I kind of cracked that nut, once I cracked the nut of, of, of that dynamic, evolving fitness function, I realized that the model is, in fact, very, very good for the, the, the disruption of our current, you know, systems. And that's kind of like where I'm, where I'm very much approaching it from. And where this took me was this took me to um, speak to a lot of people from the Singularity Institute. And they have been very focused on this idea of developing uh, friendly AI. And what I've had to, you know, kind of uh, fight with them initially over is that evolution isn't friendly and the path to intelligence that we took as human beings isn't friendly. It's tooth and nail. It's very much a, a cutthroat situation. And if I were to emulate these types of, of properties, this, this cutthroat type of thing in code, without supplying an ethical framework for it, it's one of those things that I don't know I could control it. And that seems unethical to me, to develop something which you know is basically going to get out of your, out of your control right away. And so my approach is to say, okay, well, wait a minute. We need to talk about what will happen if I do this thing, because it, it, it's potentially scary. It's potentially dangerous. And I don't want to do something that is going to you know, a couple of weeks later, land me in jail. And that is very much a real possibility from where I'm sitting. Okay, so let's deconstruct some components of this. Prior to writing Artificial Life, I wrote antiviral software. And I think there is a good reason that we have domestic cats and domestic dogs. There is a symbiotic relationship that we have with these animals which enables them to flourish. And what you find with computer viruses in particular is that the ones that, um, I don't want to say super evolve, but the ones that get a little bit too big for their boots and start doing a wide variety of crazy things tend to be on the machines that get switched off. 
So there needs to be, in order for... Uh, what I found writing antiviral software was that computer viruses model biological viruses very well. And the ones that kill the hosts quickly generally don't reproduce or generally do, don't you know, have the kind of growth rate to the ones that have some degree of symbiosis with the host environment. So my feeling with regards to this kind of technology is that if you have concerns about something going crazy or super adapting, it's probably going to be cut off relatively quickly, either through the breakdown of networks in which it's being communicated across or the fact that users will, in fact, interact with it, or it'll crash the operating system environments or whatever it is running on. So there are all these fail-safe things that you find in the digital domain which also exist in the biological domain. If I can return to the analogy of domestic cats and domestic dogs... My feeling is that as artificial life develops, it will have a domesticated role in terms of, and they always use the you know, comments with regards to the elderly, I think we're already starting to see emergent artificial life looking after children. I think these kind of components are where artificial life is going to flourish in the short term. And I think as artificial life developers, we should probably, and this was one of the great things about talking to Brian um, last week, is that he appreciates that, you know, children are, as a cliche, the future with regards to artificial life. But the crazy, super-intelligent megalomaniacs tend to either shoot themselves in the foot or get locked away very quickly. And the metaphor for getting locked away for software technology, fundamentally, is machines getting switched off, machines getting pulled from networks, or actually the machines themselves being so unstable that the virus or what have you cannot replicate. So in that regard, there needs to be, you know, the, there are, there are um, tampering factors. There are things that will, will um, quell something that is overly aggressive with regards to evolution and reproduction. I think humanity is a great example of that um, in, in some regard, that the radicals uh, in only extreme circumstances can motivate... Uh, degressive change, that there is a kind of, you know, a, 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 a tampering factor associated with uh, the way societies evolve and the way radicals within societies are quelled in some regard. And I think the same is true in the digital domain with regards to, as I said, software, viruses, and also artificial life software. When we were talking about, I can't remember, it was one of the conversations that occurred um, maybe now 15 months ago, there was some discussion about how humans were the selection pressure, and I think this is going to be very much the case with uh, emerging artificial life in games, that actually the players will be the selection pressure in some regard. So in order for an artificial life to sustain and to uh, propagate a kind of equivalent of relatively dumb viruses, computer viruses, it will need to be able to maintain a relative insipid nature, otherwise the technology which it is relying upon to move will not be stable. So that's my concern with regards to that. Let's explore a little bit with regards to the Singularity Institute as well, because my own communication and my own research with regards to the Singularity Institute would bring into question their ability to act in some degree of discourse with regards to applied artificial life, particularly with regards to the ethics of artificial life.
So, uh, in terms of your interaction with them, they are very much dealing with, uh, I don't want to say necessarily an ideological ideal, but it is fundamentally ideologically driven with regards to where this technology is headed. But in terms of the contemporary technology and in terms of the kind of analysis that we've been able to do only in the past few minutes, I don't necessarily see them having the uh, applied skill set necessary. So in terms of these ideas of, of, of tempering things down, in terms of this idea of um, needed parasitism in some regard in order for these things to survive and propagate, does this alleviate any of your concerns? It certainly does. Um, I, I absolutely agree that there is you know, a, a symbiotic relationship that must form. And my concern is that during the time before the symbiotic relationship has formed, Basically, what we've done is started an arms race where the machines are constantly trying to find better ways to, to propagate, and you can you know, shut down the vast, the, network, the vast majority of them, but like a good botnet, you're never going to get them all, or like a good virus, you're never going to get them all. And so it's constantly kind of sitting there in the background trying new things, waiting to discover a new way to propagate or waiting to discover a new way to exploit a system. Um, and so it, during that time, there's, there's kind of an arms race, which, like, we're fighting with the, the, the virus, fighting with the machine in order to um, reach that symbiotic, um, that symbiotic situation. And what I'm trying to do, and maybe it's a bit naive of me, is shortcut that process by working towards the situation where things are symbiotic from the get-go, Right. So, within existing technology, there is this idea of planned obsolescence. And the way in which technology has developed in recent years is always with regards to uh, fundamentally things becoming obsolete in relatively short time frames. Now, whilst I appreciate the Y2K hysteria associated with you know, a certain number of servers that hadn't been touched since the you know, late 70s or what have you, my sense is that the, um, the biodiversity, for want of a better term, of the um, technological substrate that these organisms would be swimming across is constantly changing and constantly uh, moving in ways in which are not in any way that um, an evolutionary algorithm could adapt to necessarily. In fact, I can't imagine the kind of, uh, I don't even want to use the term logic, but the kind of methodologies that go into uh, technological development in terms of networks and operating systems and machines and these kind of things leave open for a particular organism to squirrel itself away. I think this is, in some regard, beautiful science fiction. But what interests me more, and particularly on a personal level as an artificial life developer, is the sense that if there are people such as yourself that have this degree of ethical concern, it really is something which should... I don't know, maybe it's the responsibility of the community in some regard to, to bring people away from this ethical concern. Because I don't think there is anything productive in the discussion of you know, whether these things could be uh, super malicious viruses or these kind of, you know, ideas. There already exists in the in the kind of ignorant public 
this view, and I think as artificial life developers, it's our responsibility to actually explain in very calm and logical and methodical fashion that these technologies are ultimately designed for, uh, you know, some degree of benefit, some degree of mutual benefit. And I like the, the cat and the dog example. I like these kind of things as a means of explaining artificial life. The striking thing is that even if you look at the extremes, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, these kind of examples, there never really is the all-pervasive evil that humanity itself hasn't been able to construct and kind of create. I mean, my sense is that technology, whilst it is a great means for a small, you know, number of individuals to make a vast quantity of money, in terms of the ability of communication, in terms of the ability for us to even have this discussion and then broadcast it to, you know, how many people will listen, is far greater than any concern that, you know, these these means, these technical means could be used for detriment. And my concern is, as an artificial life developer, there should be no artificial life developers that aren't putting their information into a communicative uh, discourse with other artificial life developers based on ethical concerns which seem to be very abstract compared to the actual realities of the environment. Yes, certainly. Um, I, I absolutely agree that, um, that it, you know, information wants to be free and needs to be free. And it was really, you know, kind of my naivety that, that had led me very much down this path of going, you know, I've come across something, I don't necessarily understand all the ramifications of it. And so the next step for me was to reach out to the community and say, hey, I've got all these concerns. In fact, I'm really concerned about it, and these are the reasons why, and these are the types of discussions that I'd like to have, discussions about ethics and concerns and stuff like that, because they, I think that they absolutely can be alleviated, and, you know, a lot of mine have been alleviated. Um, as far as, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, of, of evolving ethical frameworks, it is, it is very abstract, and the technology itself is very much a, 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 a an incredible uh, opportunity, not only to make a lot of money, but to solve a lot of problems, you know. Um, and that is why, you know, very much I'm very excited about continuing my work and engaging with the community and saying, hey, what is it that I need to be concerned if? If, if I do this thing, what are the ramifications? Because I don't necessarily understand them at all. And so that's, you know, kind of why I'm talking to you right now. So, so are you in some regard looking for some kind of social indemnification with regards to your actions? Probably, yes. That would, that would probably be a good description for it. Um, that or somebody with a really compelling reason for me to just not do it at all, right? One or the other. So in terms of doing something abstract, you talk about your technology as a kind of whole life's work in some regard, or certainly a past decade's worth of work. Uh -huh. But in terms of something abstract like contributing components or, as you are doing currently, some degree of your analysis into an open discussion, is there a way that you could move some of what you've done, for example, into an open source project or into something that already exists? Could you write, you know, some 
and a brevet software that's you know explains some of the components so the ways that you can ease into the community that would alleviate some of your concerns certainly um you know, it's, it's definitely helped to kind of have a lot of discussions about the Evo grid and those types of technologies, and kind of um, get a better. When I when I when I really got into artificial life in the past year, having come from more of a background of artificial intelligence and um, genetic program, genetic optimizations, and neural networks, um, I, I very much was not familiar with you know the other people who were involved in it and the work that they had done. And so the past year has kind of been an, an education for me in things like Darwin at Home and Noble Ape and, and playing with those types of projects. Um, and so for, for me, uh, I am extremely anxious to, you know, re, um, reintroduce some of my own findings back into the community at large and allow those to be continued by the community and in turn continue them myself based off of, you know, what the community finds and working with them to... Um, do that, and my I'm absolutely willing to, um, you know, share what it is that I have learned, especially with regards to evolutionary computing, because that's where that's where a lot of the real problems, you know, get solved is when you start applying it to evolutionary computing. And the problem that I kept on running across wasn't necessarily with evolutionary computing; it was when um, something I did got out of hand, and I really needed to have kind of a, like you said, a social indemnification to, you know, to at least put out there that I had researched these topics, understood the ramifications, made an informed decision at the and with and with having the community behind me in making that decision before I just blindly made that decision and, and released all of my code to the developers. I think this idea of social indemnification is an interesting one, and it isn't necessarily one that I would personally subscribe to. I think certainly my own experiences with regards to a wide variety of movements seems to indicate that social indemnification actually provides indemnification for a wide variety of things which are, in some regard, completely unethical. My interest with regards to talking about social indemnification is more about a kind of personal psychological analysis. I mean, I think in terms of my own view, uh, I've always thought of indemnification as an abstract and independent concept. But if what you're saying with regards to your ethical concerns is actually more about you engaging in a community, in a community discourse, and then introducing your ideas through that discourse, I think that's something that's a little bit different than having primary ethical concerns with regards to the technology. I mean, certainly the correspondence I get from folks who listen to these podcasts is extraordinarily positive. But also, a number of the correspondents say... I really want to contribute to Biota Light, for example. I really want to call in. But I'm concerned with the level of dialogue that there's almost a an intelligence test, an implicit intelligence test in engaging in the Biota narrative. And I think my concern is, with regards to these folk, is firstly, they represent, in some regard, the people that should be interacting and communicating. So on this level, maybe there is a slight deconstruction to your ethical concerns with regards to just more your kind of moving into a, a new community as you've kind of started investigating over the past year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'm just not sure what I would 
say about it. I mean, the, the community itself has been has been incredible. It has been very much a, a eye-opening experience. Um, on some levels, I've found people who are uh, very much uh, more advanced than I am in, in certain fields. And on the other hand, um, I, I was a little bit surprised that um, not I haven't exactly come across anybody who is actively searching for the Pinocchio function. Everybody seems to be fairly satisfied to do things like evolve um, physical life forms and just never have them go beyond that kind of physical simulation or never go beyond that um, just exploring emergent properties or just exploring um, evolution into the true kind of, you know, for me anyway, the true holy grail of, of genuinely replicating all of life's processes enough to replicate all of, well, life's processes, including things like intelligence and, and reasoning and things of that nature, and, and replicating those types of things. And so it, it's been, you know, at once an, an education um, for me about kind of the state of the art and the way, the where, where people are, and, and, and at the same time, kind of a, a bit of a search for me, kind of trying to find somebody else who is, you know, going down the same path that I'm trying to go down and um, searching for, searching along the same lines that I'm searching along and looking for the same things that I'm looking for. So we've corresponded a little bit about this via email, and my sense of the community is more that you are dealing now with people that have been developing artificial life for well more than a decade, and they have a variety, and well more than you know, two decades in the case of a few. And they have had a variety of life experiences doing this. I think they all have some element of childlike wonder, which is ultimately what you're talking about in terms of sustained development. But I think there is also fundamentally a pragmatism in long-term artificial life developers. So I think they are, um, in, in contrast to what you're saying, actually looking for more. They are actively looking for uh, discourse and a development of their own ideas. But their own characteristics and their methods of approach may not say that explicitly up front in the first conversation or maybe even the tenth conversation. But I get a sense communicating with a lot of people in, in you know, the broader artificial life community that there is this shared goal for a movement forward whether or not it's some um, organized thing or actively communicated or it's on the top of everyone's development list i think when you look in an applied context and this is why i always say don't give up the day job if you're developing artificial life as a hobby and you enjoy doing it if you give up the day job and then you make artificial life your job you're going to have a wide variety of problems that come through, and this has been the experience of the community. So what you deal with when you communicate with particularly people that have been developing artificial life for more than a decade is a wide variety of life experiences that are in fact quite removed from this childlike wonder component that developing artificial life ultimately uh, nurtures. Uh, in artificial life developers. So I wouldn't necessarily say that the community doesn't hold that. I think you're just dealing with a variety of quite complex characters and actually getting it out of them is going to be different in each of them in terms of how you communicate with them. But I think certainly... That's certainly a, a better way of putting it, I think, because to, to be, and I've said this many times before, in all of my, in all of my learnings and all of my uh, education on this subject, I have 
very much stood on the shoulders of giants, of those who have come before me, people like yourself and, and Gerald DeJong and, and uh, Adam Aramenko and people like that. They are the ones who had the initial childlike wonder to go out there and ask those questions and write that code and explore those areas. And then um, I, I think that, you know, there's, that you're right, a certain layer of pragmatism has often um, settled on top of that childlike wonder. And so when I talk to, for instance, uh, for instance, Gerald DeJong, he is very much focused on evolving physical systems that, you, that he can in turn uh, build out of physical, you know, in, in real physical models and evolving um, systems that work and that can in turn translate into the physical world. Um, and that's, that's really what I'm referring to is that I, haven't, I have not yet come across the person who is specifically looking down my very narrow approach, my very narrow um, design approach, because everybody very much has their own kind of design approach to it. You know, you have, you know, the apes on an island or, or the walkers in a, in a, in a, or the walkers on a, on a plane or the things swimming in a pond, right? And, um, and so I'm kind of, you know, looking out for people who are like me in that they're interested in evolving um, purely digital life forms, uh, more like, what's his name, Tom Ray from the creator of Tiara and Avita and things like that. And so it, it is absolutely a, a fascinating education, the enormous amount of, of diversity and the enormous um, amount of genius that has absolutely been applied to the field. And I am... I am taking this, you know, this this absolute mountain of of knowledge and just trying to add my own pebble, just kind of on top of it. So here's another mode of analysis that I use and came up through my discussions with Brian, although I think it was fundamentally edited from what was published in the podcast. If you look at artificial life as being a movement that was created maybe 20, 25 years ago as a formal movement, it is not really that artificial life has founding fathers. It is that artificial life has really deadbeat dads in some regard. The people that started the movement are no longer attached to the movement in any regard. So what you find is the people that continue the movement are either primarily connected with some of those folk, have met them with students at the time that they were doing their primary publication on artificial life, or people that have developed based on the wonder that came through these people's collective writings. So if you look at something like theoretical physics or mathematics, but really theoretical physics is a good example. As we've talked about Einstein, let's use theoretical physics. If Einstein decided in his mid-30s that he wasn't going to talk about theoretical physics anymore, he wasn't going to have anything to do with it, he wasn't going to answer any questions, theoretical physics was dead to him, contemporary theoretical physics would be very different. And what you find with artificial life is that contemporary artificial life comes from a movement that no longer talks about it explicitly. And this produces a different kind of characteristics, both with regards to the practitioners and, and the movement itself. So maybe what you're seeing as well is also this, this combination of kind of brutalism and pragmatism and idealism all kind of move together. And certainly when I interact with a number of people in the artificial life community, I'm very well aware of the historical legacy of artificial life and how it's impacted the movement 
in quite a strange way in terms of what I do with biota because I've actually gone back and tried to I mean literally the the fellow who coined the term artificial life who doesn't need to be mentioned explicitly it is like Dr. Livingston I presume you you're really like moving through digital Africa in the kind of you know 19th century in order to try and get in communication with this fellow to even you know solicit the potential for an interview and a number of these characters are like that I've been successful in getting one individual into the podcast but aside from that it's really really difficult and what happens as well with these kind of movements is that there are people that as you say look as if they are standing on the shoulders of giants and then there are people who come to it with the view that ultimately all that they create and develop is something that is new and is moving something forward with a great degree of momentum and wonder. And certainly when I was talking with Brian last week, I wanted to convey to him that this was the way I saw my responsibilities as the editor of Biota, was to take this movement and not necessarily look back in any kind of legacy historical sense, but really look about motivating the practitioners in moving the ideas in artificial life forward. And I think in the way that you have come to it now at this time, you are really in a relatively unique position, or all the folk that are listening currently that have only started kind of digging into artificial life within the past year or so, you're in a unique position to actually motivate the dialogue in directions that it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't even been thought of to date. And certainly my concern with regards to what you've discussed in terms of these abstract ethical ideas is that they have um, a parasitic effect, uh, uh, an an eroding effect on folks that are coming to artificial life now in terms of their own motivated and creative thought. So if we're going to conclude this discussion... My thinking is, can you can you address fundamentally what is left in your ethical concerns with regards to artificial life, and so we can have some kind of either to be continued or some logical conclusion? Yeah, certainly. Um, my ethical concerns have largely been addressed at this point. It, it, it's like you said, uh, I've, I've come to this field to find a lot of skeletons, a lot of people who, you know, Evolutionary computation was invented, I think, back in the 70s or something. As far as I can tell, it basically got dropped for the past 30 years. No real significant advancements, anyway, that I have seen have come out of it. And this is very much a a part of, you know, the processes which which are embodied in artificial life. And um, the ethical concerns were really just kind of, you know, out of, is there anybody who truly understands what it is that I'm doing? Is, is what I'm doing, am I alone, you know? Because fear definitely creeps in when you're alone, right? When you're in a box and you're in the dark and you don't know what else is out there or who else is out there and what else they're doing. And when you, when you open your eyes and you get involved in the community and you, you know, start to explore the different areas that people are, that, that people are, are exploring themselves and kind of banding together, it's like turning on the light in a dark room, you know? It's like, oh, maybe this isn't so scary. Maybe this isn't, like, something that I really need to be concerned about. Maybe this is something that people are actively dealing with and, and thinking about. And so it, it, it was absolutely my intention not to um, scare anybody away from the, the field, but more to engage them in, in conversations, meaningful conversations, conversations that I definitely don't see people having or 
Mindshare over in downtown Los Angeles. I'm going to be talking about um, artificial life, and we've also spoken about starting up a great um, Los Angeles. And I think that's an awesome opportunity for you know me to kind of spread the word and get it out there. And I definitely do apologize if I have you know raised any alarm bells concerning ethics. The field itself is like any other field, you know, fraught with dangers. But ultimately, the good that comes out of it is is very very good. And my ethical concerns were genuinely out of ignorance, and it has been an educational process for me to address those. Well, thank you very much, Travis, for the opportunity to, to chat with you, and based on the fact that you'll be speaking tomorrow evening, I will put this discussion out in the feed without any editing, so it can be out there for, uh, for you to reference in your uh, speaking tomorrow. Great, that would be awesome. Thank you. Thank you.